Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Elveson with the Digital Education Podcast, and I'm with a friend again today that's been on the podcast a number of times, Thomas Arnett. And Thomas is a senior research fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute. And his, his work focuses on using the theory of disruptive innovation to study innovative instructional models and their potential to scale student-centered learning in K-12 education. He also studies demand for innovative resources and practices across the K-12 education system using the jobs to be done theory. So anybody who knows me knows why I love talking to Tom, right? And and we've done this before where we've talked about the 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 jobs to be done theory and what that means for innovation in education and personalization. We've talked about uh, creating new value networks where like the, I've got a lot of mileage off of that conversation, Thomas. So that's been a huge help. And, you know, and then in this conversation, we just kind of continue down this road of talking about education, innovation, and, and the hopes and the desires of greater personalization for the learner in the process and in, in the innovative process. But Tom, Thomas, you, you just put out a, a report with a couple other organizations that's titled Families on the New Frontier, Mapping and Meeting the Growing Demand for Unconventional Schooling where you looked at some of the growth of, and I like how you call it unconventional schooling, but you look at, 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 at some of the, the job to be done theory, uh, jobs to be done theory, and you, you kind of break it out into different things of why people switch schools, what people are looking for, maybe you know some of those types of things. But in this report, I, I just general thoughts, what led to it? How does it build on some of your other work? And, and mm -hmm what were maybe some of the early dis or, or the interesting discoveries for you that might've surprised you? Yeah. Well, let me say, thanks for the invitation to be on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk about this stuff. Um, so as your listeners probably know, um, there's this thing that's been out in the, in this, you know, the realm of education called micro schools. And it was around before COVID, but then during COVID we had the takeoff of, not only micro schools, but things like learning pods and and different homeschooling co-op arrangements um, that really saw, you know, basically a doubling of demand during COVID. Now, that being said, it's still a really small trend. It's like, you know, probably less than 5% of families in K-12 education that are, that are choosing these options. But within that small pocket, like it's grown a ton over the last few years. And so we worked with some other organizations that are also interested in that space to understand, well, why is it that families are choosing these things? What is it they offer? Because when you go to one of these unconventional options, there's definitely a lot you give up leaving a tried and true conventional school model. Um, so what is it that, that really motivates them? And so I'll give an overview. We found three different jobs to be done that motivate families. And I guess by jobs to be done, you know, just to, you know, uh, your, your listeners have probably heard this before, but just to touch on that, <laughs> just to touch on it, um, jobs to be done is the idea that people make decisions to buy something new or adopt something new when the circumstances in their life push them toward that decision. 
Um, so, you know, you're on a road trip and your car breaks down, you have a job of, I need to hire a mechanic to get my car working. Or you come home one day and there is water dripping from your second story bathroom down into your living room and you have a job to be done of, I need a plumber to fix this, <laughs> fix this leak. Well, so same thing happens for lots of different decisions. Like, you know, what, what are the circumstances and the progress people are trying to make that lead them to make these decisions? And when we interview folks, we start to see kind of these common narratives or common pathways that lead to whatever decision we're studying. In this case, it was why do families pick micro schools? So the first job to be done was when I disagree with decisions of my child's school, with decisions at my child's child's school, and I'm feeling unheard, help me find an alternative that, we're, that will honor my perspective and my values. Um, so this is, you know, really a job that centers on the parent. The parent feels like there's something going on at my school, some change that, that I don't feel comfortable with. So as an illustration, one parent that we talked to, her kids were at a private school that was really had branded itself around having a small school personalized kind of experience. And then the school shifted ownership and the new owners were trying to grow the school and they started to do stuff that just didn't feel personalized anymore. And this parent felt like, well, I don't like it, but when I speak up, I'm not a big donor. I'm a single mom. I'm not giving a lot of money to the school. They're not really listening to me. And so she felt like she had to find a new option. So just as a high level thing, the first job really is about the parent's struggle with what's going on at the school. The second job is when my child is unhappy, unsafe, or struggling at school, help me find an environment where they can regain their love for learning. So this job, in contrast to the first one, was really all about the child. It was the child wasn't happy. And we heard stories about parents saying like, look, I, I just was tired of the battle of every day trying to get my child to get out of bed. They just did not want to go. And that could have been for a range of reasons. It could have been my child is struggling with reading and all they do at school is put them in more reading time and they hate reading and just doing more reading. You know, they hate it. Or it could have been my child is getting bullied or my child is really active and they're getting disciplined all the time. Um, and so for social reasons, they're not liking school. Um, but so again, this one was really about the child's experience, them, you know, transferring over to the parent having a bad experience because they were having tension and frustration with their child. And then the last one was when my child's school is too focused on academic milestones and neglects other forms of learning, help me find a balanced educational experience for my child. So this one was really about parents just having a different philosophy about what education should be. Um, you know, often really centered on whole child development and on wanting their kids to learn through play or learn through exploration or really be exposed to a lot of diverse experiences and just finding that, hey, my local school just seems too focused on academics, too focused on the, the conventional model of schooling and I want something different for my child. Um, so one reflection that's really stood out to me looking at these jobs to be done is that um, the parents that picked these unconventional models really had the pressure within these jobs really reach a boiling point. They had to be struggling a lot to the point where they were saying, I'm going to make the jump and go into this kind of new on the frontier, unproven model of schooling, right? But as I looked at these jobs, I was like, you know, I think these are actually pretty common for a lot of parents and a lot of students. It's just that for most families, it never gets so bad that they're willing to make the hard trade-offs to leave their conventional school because they find 
you know, despite these frustrations, these tensions, conventional school still does a lot for them. You know, it gives them a place to send their kid while they go to work. Their kid, you know, maybe they're struggling with academics, but they still like seeing their friends. Or maybe the parent doesn't totally agree with the philosophy of the school, but, you know, they feel like my kid's going to be fine in the end and they're getting the basics. You know, I, we're not ready to disrupt our whole lives over this. Um, so to me, though, making that observation points me to, you know, micro schools right now are really only capturing these people for whom the tensions are really boiling over. But it makes me wonder a lot about like, you know, as more and more people pay attention, if they if they pay attention to these jobs and start to innovate within whatever school around these jobs, will you see demand for innovative models grow as they figure out how to really hone in on serving these jobs and serving them for people who aren't struggling so much, um, you know, making the transition easier for them to adopt something different. Yeah. It, there's so many things in that, that I want to come <laughs> back to because, uh -huh. because, you know, just let me sit on one thing real quick before we come back to, to that, because in, in it, I found it really interesting job one, like one of the things that you say is that these were, these were parents that just wanted to feel like they were heard. Right. Uh -huh. So, so in a lot of that ways too, is like when you look at the conventional school, often conventional schools aren't good at hearing, right. Or, yeah. or making you, they might listen, they might take it in, but they, they don't necessarily make you feel like, you know, you were valued and that your perspective was valued in that process. And then there was a statement when it comes to jobs, job, you know, kind of number two, where it was, something bad, something's not going well, right? You talk about mm -hmm. bullying or you talk about the change and the, you know, these sorts of things. But I thought it was interesting on that one. You say socially, these parents are sick of teachers and administrators complaining to them about their children mm -hmm. and making them feel like bad parents. Yeah. They want to be seen as parents who take action to protect their children and so it's this really interesting place that then the conventional systems looking at them as like you're not good parents and they're saying hey mm -hmm. help us but then it doesn't get to that place of help so it's like okay i'm going to go to the unconventional to go for mm -hmm. help so i think that highlights that pressure point that you're talking about for parents where the conventional system in some ways when i was reading this oh yeah i've been there as a school administrator i didn't mm -hmm. I didn't value and I didn't really hear this person mm -hmm. and their perspective. Second thing is I didn't, I, I, I judged and I didn't see them as a good parent who was struggling with this student or in this situation, we were maybe part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the third part of the job, the jobs to be done. Third part that I thought was really interesting is we don't get creative enough in trying to create solutions within our system because the conventional nature just limits us. Mm -hmm, so that was mm -hmm. some of the way I read it. Um, but what, what, like, what was something that really, when you talked to these parents and when you did some of these focus groups that you came away from, like what types of parents are these? Well, let me say to, to get rid of a misconception, they're not outlier parents. They're not yeah. like strange people <laughs> that you're, you know, that most of us don't interact with. They're pretty normal parents. It's just that circumstances boil up in their lives where they're, you know, they and or their child is really struggling with with issues around schooling. Um, and so they're picking these options. Um, yeah. Does that answer? You yeah. Know, it, is that, cause, cause is that I surprising? It, or? <laughs> I, I guess not for me. 
right? It's, uh-huh. I think like what you're talking about is like you've got, you know, parents who chose the conventional system because that's what they knew, that's what they wanted, or that's what they desired, whether it be a private school that's doing personalization or whether it's a public school or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and then they just get to a place where they just get so exacerbated that, that, that the system is not meeting their son or daughter's needs. So it's mm-hmm. like, I've got to do something different. So I think on that point, like, do you see this? Like it's grown rapidly. And then we mm-hmm. watch like the choice movement throughout the country. And it looks like in 2024, more legislation will be passed to create more school choice options and mm-hmm. and micro schools and the unconventional stuff is growing rapidly. Do, do you predict, like, what would you predict? Like it stays like a small niche or that it begins to grow and it begins to then in that innovation way or disruptive innovation, it begins to disrupt the conventional system. That's mm-hmm. what I'm really interested in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're interested in that because that is what I spent a lot of time thinking about is that broader implication of some of this research. Um, I think it's going to grow to be candid, but at the same time, I don't think it's going to grow quickly because there's a lot of barriers, you know, Um there's a lot of political barriers. There's a lot of um, just uncertainty barriers. You know, for most families, like there's just a lot of risks and a lot of, they don't have a lot of social proof of like, oh yeah, I know tons of kids that went through these routes and they work just fine. It's like, eh, I'm kind of really stepping out on a limb trying these, you know, novel, you know, on the new frontier models of schooling. So for that reason, I I don't think growth is going to be quick. It's not like, you know, two years from now, every kid's going to be in a micro school, not at all. But I do think they're going to grow And let me touch on something, too, about why I think they're going to grow. You know, when people get frustrated with the conventional school, it's easy to blame, like, oh, the administrator wouldn't listen to me or the teacher wouldn't listen to me or they wouldn't solve my problems. But if I can tie back into that concept of value networks that we talked about in previous podcasts that you brought up at the beginning here, um, school systems, they sit within a value network. And that what that means is they, they basically have. And, uh, an environment of external folks, external entities that end up shaping their priorities because they're interdependent with those entities, interdependent for resources they need or permissions they need to, to keep their doors open. And so those, anyway, those external entities are what we call the value network. And it's important because it shapes priorities of the, of the, of the school system. Well, one of the challenges for a lot of conventional schools is that their value networks are complicated. They're getting pulled in a lot of different directions that make it hard to prioritize what particular families need. You know, so you think of a public school district, it's like I've got the state telling me things I need to do. I've got, you know, if I'm getting federal grants, I've got the federal government telling me things to do. And not only that, I'm ser- I'm, you know, mandated to serve every single job to be done in my community. And it's hard to do all the jobs to be done of all the families and do them all really well. And I think, you know. I'm going to just say it is what it is. Micro schools have an advantage in that because they're small and because they're mostly private, their value networks can be really focused on these are the jobs to be done we're serving. These are the families we're serving. Our existence depends on being able to collect tuition from those families, which means we are going to be hyper laser focused on fulfilling their jobs to be done. Um, You know, that's just a reality. I think that micro schools are much better at really honing in on the jobs to be done of the particular families being they serve. Now, that being said, there's a whole host of other barriers of like, 
there isn't really a big value network that supports the microschooling movement right now. You know, you don't have big curriculum providers and big teacher prep programs, and you don't have tons of state funding that support these things. So those are barriers to their growth. But I just, to me, this research highlights like the, the one thing they really have going in their favor is their ability to hone that value network around the particular jobs to be done of the families that they're choosing to serve. But I think that then, you know, as a lesson for whether you're running a micro school or you're in a conventional system, you know, how can you carve out spaces to build new programs that can be similarly aligned around particular jobs to be done? I think we need to get past the notion of like, we have a school for our community that serves all the needs in our community. And we need to think more about whether it's, you know, separate schools within a district or separate pathways within a school, finding ways where you can focus in on different jobs to be done um, of the different families you're trying to serve. And, and, that, and that's something that's super interesting to me because like I've always been intrigued by, you know, disruptive innovation. And a lot of times the disruptive innovation happens because of the outside, you know, in, the outside innovators that put mm -hmm. pressure on the system on the mm -hmm. conventional system so much. So sometimes that conventional system collapse and then something new is recreated out of it. Or what happens is it puts so much pressure on the conventional organizations and systems that they get innovative themselves. And it's somebody mm -hmm. who has been an educator now for 20, 26 years um, and chose to kind of deem myself as an innovator within the system. Uh -huh. That's one of the things I'm always surprised about. Like, what would be your encouragement? You know, because you've been in you, you, you kind of Kansas City public schools, but you did teach for America. So conventional system, but unconventional process to get there. You've uh -huh. been a part of, if I'm not mistaken, from former conversations, you've been part of a, a board for a charter school. Um, and a I'm, board for a school district, both of them. Yeah. 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 And so, <laughs> so it's like, so what would be your push if, we still kind of, you know, estimate that, you know, if we consider private schools as part of the conventional system, they're more, you know, a lot of them are. At, yeah. Yeah. We look at 85%. Let's just, you know, we'll be maybe generous mm -hmm. with the 15% who are homeschool, micro school alternative, right. You know, some of that space. But if we look at 85% of kids in the United States go to kind of conventional schools, like mm -hmm. what would be the push to say, hey, you know what, start like getting to know these micro schools or start looking at the unconventional and start reimagining what you can do. Because you hit on a couple of things like I'm always surprised that school districts don't do. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I'm going to say like for better or for worse, I think this is the reality is that school districts, like I said, if you're a superintendent, you're an administrator, you have all these different competing priorities pushing on you from your value network. Um, and that makes it hard to innovate. And it means that you kind of, when people get frustrated with the status quo, I think of the status quo is just the stable equilibrium that's been worked out as school districts and the administrators in them try to balance all these different competing priorities. Um, so let me say one comment is that I think the external pressure is important for helping school districts prioritize this innovation. Because when they start you know, seeing both the threat of, oh, we might lose enrollments here, and the possibility of, wow, there's some proof points out there showing us what we could do. I think that helps create both the motivation and just a more clear pathway to, to innovate. But a second point I want to make, and I think this is really key, is that I don't think innovation can happen successfully 
if you're trying to take your existing school and just reconfigure it, you know, do more professional development, buy new resources, you won't actually get there because you're still plugging it into a to an entity that is primarily about serving the existing value network. If you really want to build new models, you've got to figure out, you know, within your district, how do we create new programs or new schools that can form their own value network that's distinctive from the value network that puts the pressure on our existing schools and our existing system? So where I've seen this happen really well is like when a district spins out an alternative education program or a CTE program, and the, the leadership has the vision to say, hey, this isn't just like to plug a gap of, you know, improving our graduation rate by catching up some dropouts, or this isn't just to plug a gap of, you know, filling some students who are disengaged. These are actually the spaces where we can really try new things because the students and families that are going to be initially attracted to these already want something very different. They're not saying, give me conventional schooling just better. They're saying, I'm willing to give up a lot of what conventional schooling has because I need something different or I just value something very different. And by serving the, the students and families in that space, you get a different value network. You also, you know, often get different if you're a you know, a public school, you get different state policies. You know, the states often have a separate set of policies that apply to a virtual school or to a CTE program or to a, an alternative school and separate, you know, separate funding streams. Um, and all that just gives you a different value network to go create a different type of program and, fit, and use that as the place to incubate and figure out how do we do things different. Um, uh, one, one comment to really draw this distinction. People often think of charter schools as the place where you do innovation. But a lot of charter schools look pretty similar to conventional schools. And the reason is that their policies are very similar, the state policies they're operating under, but even more so the families they're trying to serve. If they're just trying to compete head to head with a district school to serve the same families, those families want the same things. They push the school to do the same kind of things, just try to do them better, right? But Within districts and within pockets of the charter school space, if you try to serve the, the people that are that are not wanting conventional, whether that's dropouts, whether that's homeschoolers, whether that's you know chronically disengaged students, that's really the space um, both within districts and within charter school space and even within micro schools where you get that different set of priorities that can steer you toward really innovative new models of schooling. And, and that's it, it's so good. It's so good because because maybe put yourself in the mind of like advising a policymaker for a second, mm -hmm. because I'm watching policy right now and it doesn't make a lot of sense in, in a lot of different places. Right. We open up ESAs and people can do whatever, but then we put greater restrictions on the conventional system so that the conventional system can't compete or can't respond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or we create ESAs and maybe because we don't like them public, you know, you know, politically, you know, then we try to, um, you know, in some ways, you know, create bureaucracies or structures or excessive. I'm for accountability and I'll always be for some for levels of accountability, but excessive accountability that shrinks up the creativity and the opportunities mm -hmm. of what not only what that new school or that unconventional school could do, but if the, if the big conventional system wanted to respond to, they wouldn't be able to create, you know, that alternative, or they wouldn't be able to create in some ways that competitor. Like right now, the policy stuff is so wild and so mm -hmm. incoherent. Um, what would be your encouragement based on this research and based on what you discovered 
to, to policymakers as they try to create something that educators can actually do some really cool stuff with at, at a lot of different levels. Mm hmm. Well, as a high level principle, I'd say focus on measuring the outcomes, but not on dictating the processes. Because when policymakers start to dictate the processes, a lot, a lot of times it's good intentioned. It's intentions like, hey, you know, we need to make sure that teachers have, you know, when you're preparing to be a teacher, when you're getting certified to be a teacher, that you've had certain, you know, experiences leading up to that teacher preparation. Or if you're running a school, we put in policies around like, this is what quality curriculum looks like, or this is what your student teacher ratio should be, or this is what your facility should look like, or what your curriculum should look like. Um, but those mandates around how you run your school lock that school into the conventional model because most of those mandates are built with policymakers that just are going on the assumption of like, well, this is, you know, we've had the conventional model for so long. It, for a lot of people, like that's just what normal school is. And you design policies to try and make normal schools better, the conventional model better. And, and they end up locking us into the conventional model. Um, so I think that, you know, a more powerful role for policy is instead of dictating how schools are supposed to operate, um, create policies that really measure outcomes, but also measure a wide range of outcomes. So yes, we wanna know how are students doing in reading and math, um, but we also wanna know how are they doing you know, socially and emotionally. We also wanna know, you know what kind of new learning experiences are they getting access to? Because a lot of times, you know, the families that are choosing things like micro schools or choosing even you know, virtual schools or, or uh, alternative education programs, um, they do care about academics. They care about, does my kid know how to read and write? But they're often picking that program, not because it's the best for academics. It's because there's something else that they also value that they're prioritizing. Often it's, hey, we need flexibility. Either for some families, it's like, we want flexibility so that we can take our kids and have a bunch of experiences that they can't get when they have to be in school all day. Whether that's, you know, we want them to get experiences working or starting their own businesses, or we want them to be, you know, try to be professional athletes or professional actors, right? Um, so sometimes it's around flexibility. Sometimes it's around, um, you know, things like we need the flexibility because my kid is homebound. They can't go to school every day because they have a medical condition. Um, you know, sometimes it's just, again, like in that job three that we described, a different philosophy or like, hey, education should be about a school of, ex of experiences where you're learning how to solve problems and you're exploring different areas in ways that you can't do when you're just sitting in a classroom. Um, and so, you know, I don't think it's right. At this point, we don't even know how to dictate or, or mandate what those right experiences should be. And the truth is the right experience is going to vary based on, based on the learner, based on the family. But we should at least be finding ways to measure those different things that people are valuing and then making it transparent. Hey, in the range of programs that are available within the K through 12 space, here's what different programs are excelling at, um, so that families can decide, okay, which is the right place for me based on you know, as I look at the stack of priorities for my kid, what's the right set of what's the right place for us given what we need and what we value. Uh, this is this is super great, and that's great advice, and it's a helpful reminder for me too. Right, is is not processes but outcomes. And it's easy to control the processes 
because then you can dictate those things and you can control a lot of things. I was on with a group of California superintendents yesterday and, and they were just struggling with the fact that the board that hired them is not the board that they were working for. And that uh -huh. board they're currently working for wanted different things and wanted different processes and wanted, you know, so it's that interesting push and pull of, of, of some of those things. So when, when I think about all of, you know, the, the, the conversations we've had over the last number of years, I think maybe five, five, six years now, um, what's something that for you that like your, because you, you took a look at these unconventional schools, these micro schools, like what's something that's like piqued your curiosity where it's like, I need to rethink that, or I need to learn more about that, or this is just super interesting to me. Ah, uh, that's going to be hard to put my finger on because there's, I feel like I'm constantly learning and constantly rethinking lots of different things. Um, huh, let me, <laughs> let me think about that. Um, you know, I think my thinking on how disruption plays out, that's probably the biggest thing is just how evolving my thinking on what does that look like and what quarters is it's going to cut? Where is it going to happen? How long is it going to take? Um, that, you know, the things that have happened in the last few years, especially since COVID have really accelerated my thinking on, on that front. That's super good. Cause then we talk about that in the future, right? Uh -huh. Of like what comes <laughs> out of that work and what comes out of that curiosity and that interest on the disruption side of things, and maybe we'll close out here because I've seen you post a few things about uh, artificial intelligence and education. So mm -hmm. as we close out in a little bit of this conversation and curiosity, and th this is something I've started to delve into a little bit more, like, it, it, is, is it going to disrupt education or is it a disruption or is it just a, con a continued part of our growth and development as schools and how we use technology and how we use tech tools and create new partners in our learning. Like, so what are some of the basic thoughts about AI and disruption then? Yeah. Well, this may sound like a cop-out, but it's a serious answer. Is AI going to disrupt schooling? I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, but here's, here's the, the, the kind of the theory of disruption that, and what it says that underpins my comment there. Um, Technologies are not inherently disruptive or sustaining to the existing model. It's really how that technology gets used that leads it to be sustaining or disruptive or even both. And so on one hand, I think there's going to be a lot of sustaining innovation with AI. You know, you're going to see things like, um, you know, programs out there that help students work on their essays are going to get better because they'll be better understanding what's in the essay and giving feedback on it. Programs out there that are helping kids learn math um, are going to be even better at, at understanding, okay, where are the kids' misconceptions and how do I give them feedback that is more tailored to what they need? Um, you know, all that can be layered into the existing educational technologies that are getting used across a lot of schools. And I think that's probably what we're going to see the most of in the near term is just all the ed tech companies out there, the schools are using layering AI in, in a way that just makes their products work a little bit better and a little bit smoother and makes them a little bit more effective. Um, at the same time though, to, to me, the applications that are most interesting are the ones that aren't getting a lot of talk right now, because it's less about how does AI enhance the way we do school now. And it's more about how does AI let us invent new models of schooling? Um, and where do I see that invention happening? Well, 
if you think about like the history of education technology, it traces all the way back to <laughs> the invention of the written word and the invention of the printing press. They're like some of the earliest innovations, if you think about it, in educational technology. And they made it so that, you know, written word made it so that you could learn without having to learn from the person that was teaching you because they could write something down and then you could read it years later or you could read it, you know, miles and miles away from the person who who captured that knowledge. And then you think about the printing press just made it so that written word could be disseminated in a lot more ways. So the written word really opened up this, you know, this new frontier for humanity for um, learning through other people's experiences without having to be present and learn directly from those people. But at the same time, you know, learning from reading a textbook is just not the same as learning from a teacher. That's why we've never seen, you know, distance courses, you know, distance, they've had distance courses for probably 100 years where, you know, you get sent a textbook, you read the book, you write answers to problems, or you write an essay based on what you read, you mail that back to the university, and then they, they grade it and send it back to you. Like, that's been around for a long time. It doesn't work super well, though, because it's not responsive, it's not adaptive, it doesn't give you, you know, tailored feedback, real-time feedback. But I think, you know, all sorts of learning technologies, which, you know, lately are culminating with AI, make it so that that type of self-directed learning is becoming much more accessible, much more engaging, much more personalized to different learners and what they need. Um, and so to me, the exciting way is how can we leverage those technologies that let learners learn in a more self-directed way um, how can we leverage those to then shift the whole learning experience so that it's less about, hey, I need to learn by sitting in a classroom with a teacher with a cohort of other students and we're all going to do what the teacher tells us to instead being, hey, we're going to go figure stuff out. And I have a teacher, but the teacher is less about dispensing the content, dispensing the information, um, providing the feedback and more about being my my mentor and my coach to help help me co-design my learning experience that is going to be best for my needs and my interests. Um, I think that's what's really exciting about the future of AI is that shift in the educator role and that shift toward enabling more self-directed learning. Well, and I, I agree 100%. Like I, as I've delved into it and started using even some of the tools myself, you know, is is like the role of the educator. This is this is the powerful thing for me. Like the role of the educator could possibly become what we've always imagined it to be or or more so imagined it to be or what it was where it's like you what you talk about the mentor the coach the guide the facilitator you know the person who sees the big picture in the plan going forward but mm -hmm. yet can help you as you walk that journey and bring small groups along bring big groups along but then individually work with you in that journey too that's what gets me super excited about it so so Tom, th thanks always. I know more conversations will come because you keep producing great stuff and the stuff that I love. So thank you. But what's if people want to get connected with you and learn more, I'll 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 connect the the report and some links, but what's the best way for people to learn more about your work? Yeah, so at this point, the best place to probably find out about my work is LinkedIn. Um, if you just search me on linkedin.com, that's where I'm posting all the latest content that we're producing, the latest insights, um, or to go to the Christensen Institute website and sign up for our newsletter. That's the other other place. Tom, really appreciate your time. Uh, really appreciate your work. Thank you for making my life better because of your work. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's always a pleasure, Eric.